Odd Lots listeners, it's Tracy Alloway. As you may know, Odd Lots is hosting its first ever live event on Thursday, September 19th in New York City. Join me and Joe Weisenthal as we host an evening of great conversation and live music. The Odd Lots Variety Show will feature some new and old Odd Lots guests, including the economist Stephanie Kelton. Sam Antar, the former Crazy Eddie CFO and convicted felon, will give us some of his best stories. Meanwhile, Lee Bookheit, once dubbed the philosopher king of sovereign debt lawyers, is coming Coming out of retirement for us, Zoltan Pozar of Credit Suisse and formerly of the U.S. Treasury will be on stage with Brad Setzer, senior fellow at the Council for Foreign Relations, talking all things bonds and trade. We'll also have some markets-themed music, courtesy of Merle Hazard, the most important country singer in economics and an early Oplots guest, and even Joe has promised us a song or two. You can stick around after the show for some drinks and a chance to chat with us and our guests in person. So keep listening to Odd Lots to learn how to sign up to see us live on Thursday, September 19th. We hope to see you there. Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So, Joe, I feel, and I think we've discussed this before, but it feels like the world is sort of at an inflection point right now. Uh, you th- I mean, you think so? Yeah. Isn't it always kind of an inflection point? Yeah, I guess that's true. But at least in markets, it feels like, you know, warnings that were late in the cycle, that we could get a recession at the end of this year or in 2020, those definitely seem to be heating up. I think what I would say, and where maybe we would uh, most likely agree, is not that the world is at an inflection point per se, but that what comes and goes is periods when suddenly people feel the turn is about to come. And we've had a series of these over the last 10 years, whether it was Q4 of last year, early 2016 with the economy going down, the euro crisis. From time to time, it's like there's this global collective anxiety that rises. And whether it's any more real or not is up for debate. But I would absolutely agree right now you're getting a lot of like recession calls, bear market calls, start of the easing cycle calls, things like that. A wave of global anxiety. That's a good way to put it. And this isn't really, as you mentioned, the first time that we've seen this. And I'm not just talking about markets. Uh, We've seen sort of inflection points happen in politics recently, right? So Brexit springs to mind, the election of Donald Trump as well. Yeah. And I think the fact that we have another election coming up in the U.S., again, it's one of these points where people want to call some sort of meaningful turn in something. You're, we're, we're de- there's no doubt we're, we're hearing a lot of that these days. Right. So all of this is a roundabout way of saying that we're getting a lot of forecasts and a lot of predictions, a lot of people trying to uh, call or see into the future. And so I thought it would probably be a good idea to do an episode on forecasting. I love this idea. I mean, one thing that I've always wanted to do and never done is, you know, Obviously, on TV, I talk to people all the time and they make forecasts like, oh, we're in this stock or interested in this sector Mm. or we're telling clients to do this. 
And I've never like gone back and it would just be too much work for me and like actually made a database <laughs> of all their calls. But I've always thought that's like a fascinating project or that, you know, that because who knows, everyone, you know, people just make these calls and how, how often do they ever get revisited to see if the person uh, was actually uh, right or useful in some way? Totally. And I have a feeling that our guest for this episode is going to have something to say on that particular topic. Uh, so without further ado, why don't I go ahead and bring him in? Uh, our guest is Phil Tetlock. He is Annenberg University professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also the author of numerous books and papers on forecasting. So Phil, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. So, Phil, I guess my first question is, uh, you know, one of the thrusts of a lot of your work is that experts tend to get forecasting wrong. So is it weird? Does it feel weird that you're sort of the expert on why experts fail? Um, I guess I've, I've gotten accustomed to it because I've been doing it for about 35 years now. I, I started out just after I got tenure at Berkeley in 1984, and I've uh, been tracking the accuracy of experts' predictions pretty much continuously since then. So I, I, I'm sometimes called an expertologist, which is, of course, a field that does not, does not exist. <laughs> The basic idea of keeping track of, of, of how accurate people are is, is, is a really good idea, and, and in, insofar as we all kept track of, 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 of ourselves and, and of the forecasts we make and of how well calibrated we are, I, I think the research suggests we would actually get a little bit better at it. So you've actually done what I've said for years that I've wanted to do, which is create some uh, database of forecasts and actually go back and look at who's right and who's wrong. How did you get the thought that that would be worth doing initially. And what does such a database look like? Because most forecasts are not particularly binary. People might say, oh, I 50% chance or 75 or 90% chance. So usually things aren't just this will happen or this won't happen. And often a forecast can be wrong, but the methodology turned out to be right. Or maybe someone predicted 95% chance and that was still the right framework and the 5% odds did hit. So how do you go even go about constructing a database of forecasts and measuring what turned out to be right or wrong? Uh, well, that's what tenure is for. Uh, <laughs> it, it, take, it takes a long time. The, the key thing to note is, is that you're 100% right that there are only two conditions under which you can definitively say a particular forecast was right or wrong. And that is if the forecaster was rash enough to say 100% chance and it didn't happen, or a 0% chance and it did happen, in which case you know conclusively that that specific forecast was wrong. But a forecaster says, you know, there's a 70% chance, like Nate Silver said, there's a 70% chance of, of Hillary Clinton winning the election in November 2016. Uh, was, was, was Nate Silver wrong? Or, or, or do we happen to inhabit? but a world that was 30% likely uh, on November 1st, uh, 2016. So the, the solution to the problem is statistical. Uh, you, need, you need to keep track of lots of forecasts over time. If, if we collect hundreds of, of your forecasts over the course of a year, and we find that when you say there's a 70% chance of things happening, those things happen about 70% of the time. When you say there's a 90% chance, those things happen about 90% of the time, uh, and so forth. If there's a close correspondence between your subjective probability estimates and the objective frequency with which events occur, you can be said to be reasonably well calibrated. And that's a very desirable mm -hmm. feature of forecasters. 
So when you ran your analysis, your statistical analysis of all these expert forecasts, and I'm assuming some non-expert forecasts as well, what did you find? You find that people are not very well calibrated for a start. <laughs> There's a lot of overconfidence, and when uh, for many many experts would, would would say things are 80 or 90 percent likely, or even 100 percent likely, they would occur 60 or 70 percent of the time. So there were big gaps between subjective probabilities and objective probabilities. There's a lot of overconfidence. Uh, people were not qualifying their forecast appropriately. And that, that is one of the better replicated findings in, in, in my field, which is you know, cognitive social psychology of judgment. Uh, people are overconfident, uh, tend to be overconfident. Not everybody's overconfident. There are, even, there are a few souls who are even systematically underconfident and who are, don't have enough confidence in their judgment. But uh, the, the modal, if you had to bet on what kind of mistake people are making at any given moment, <laughs> overconfidence would be the better bet. You know, I'm thinking about something one of our colleagues, uh, I'll give a shout out to him, Lorcan Roche Kelly. Uh, he works with us here at Bloomberg, and he's very fond of strategists at banks and other uh, experts who love to give a 40% forecast on things. And they're like, oh, we see a 40% forecast of this person winning the election or a 40% forecast of this country leaving the EU in the next five years. And it's like the perfect number because it's, you know, it's still on, it feels unlikely, but it's close enough to 50% that if it happens, you know, you could still say, oh, I told you it was significant, but if it doesn't happen, you could say it was unlikely. And I'm curious in your findings and in your research, you know, we think of forecasts or predictions is the point is to be accurate, but it feels like a lot of the reason people give forecasts is just to be interesting, just to have their voice heard, just to get their clients to pick up the phone. And I'm curious how that plays into your analysis of forecasts when the whole purpose is maybe not even to get it right. It's just to provoke a thought or to have your name out in the news. I think that's a very perceptive observation. It, it's a very delicate dance that people play. On the one hand, you want to say things that sound interesting uh, so people don't roll their eyes and think that this is boring and a useless conversation. On the other hand, you don't want to say things that are so interesting that they could prove to be wrong later. So you're <laughs> so forty percent seems to be sort of in the sweet spot zone, or if you were to use language, you say, well, I think there's a distinct possibility that Putin's next move is going to be on Belarus or, or on Estonia. Right. Uh, it's a distinct possibility is wonderful in exactly the same way that forty percent is pretty good. I mean, it, if it happens, I say, hey, I told you, distinct possibility. And if it doesn't happen, I said I merely said it was possible. So you you're you're, you're covering yourself very nicely. It is as though the art of punditry is is the art of um, appearing to go out on a limb without actually going out on a limb. Right. So, I mean, Joe referred to uh, forecasts as non-binary, but I feel like instinctively a lot of people want to know whether something will or will not happen, and yet we have all these uh, forecasts and calls that are sort of, you know, 30% chance, 40% chance. Are probabilities a cop-out in that case? Is it something that people hide under? Well, probabilities are not a cop-out if you're participating in forecasting tournaments in which we can systematically track how often your 40% things happen. And if things you say 40% likely happen 40% of the time, you're pretty well calibrated, and it's not simply being used as a cop-out. So, okay, so you've built this uh, database, and you've been tracking forecasters' ability for years, and you mentioned that 
there are forecasting tournaments and we can really track this stuff and that we can track how well calibrated forecasters are not on any sort of individual prediction, but by whether over time their predictions of 70 percent likelihood events happen seven out of 10 times and so forth. What are some of the interesting patterns you've discovered besides that people tend to be overconfident? What kind of people, what kind of approaches tend to distinguish the better forecasters from the uh, the worst ones? Because ultimately, I think that's sort of the point of your research. There are, there are two classic biases that we have found over the years. And one of them is that people are too quick to make up their minds. And the other is that people are too slow to change them. And it's the combination of those two things that causes chronic overconfidence. So uh, I'm curious, uh, beyond uh, sort of individual characteristics that make people a good or bad forecaster, did you notice any discrepancy in the type of forecast being made? Like, for instance, did political forecasting tend to be more or less accurate than something like economic or financial forecasting? Oh, it really depends on the time frame and 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 the and the types of questions you're asking. Uh, I, I think both economic and political forecasting can be pretty hazardous to your reputation. I think what we noticed more than anything was that the the types of forecasters who tended to be better did tend to be a little bit more boring. They they were more likely to say on the one hand, on the other hand, they were they was they were they were engaging in more explicit balancing and saying, well, there's this causal force and there's that causal force, and you have to balance them against each other. So the the types of forecasting talk that make forecasters appealing to the media tend to be to also tend to make forecasters less less accurate. So if a forecaster is going to be more appealing to the media, it would seem yeah. if they if they can come up with this compelling soundbite and they, they say something like, well, you know, I think this the Saudi regime is going to collapse within the next twelve to twenty four months. That that's that's a that's a very dramatic forecast. It would have a lot of consequences for the Middle East and for world politics. A forecaster who says, well, you know, there people have been predicting a major regime change in Saudi Arabia off and on for the last 40 years. It hasn't happened yet. <laughs> the, the base rate prediction is, 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 is not very likely. Um, there are some reasons for uh, some concern, but uh, you, know, you, can, you can feel your eyes start to glaze over listening to the, the, more, the more accurate forecasters tend to, to bore people. Yeah. So I'm just thinking, so uh, at the time that we're recording this episode, just in the last day, and by the time you're hearing this, this would be old news. But in the last day, uh, Deutsche Bank, for example, announced a major restructuring of its bank. And I'm just thinking about how, like, the imperative for the news media is immediately to find people who will come on this morning and say something about whether this restructuring of the bank is likely to be enough. Did it go far enough? Will it restore the bank to robust profitability and so forth? And it sounds like that imperative is almost exactly the opposite of what's likely to make a good forecaster. And anyone who already has their mind made up and already has a strong view on the efficacy of the plan, uh, at least going by your heuristic that the people uh, that good forecasting is not correlated with uh, quick judgment or, uh, you know, quick decision making, which seems like we are kind of like highlighting, uh, most likely highlighting some of the worst people we could be highlighting. Well, 
it, it really, you have to make a decision about what kind of business you're in. If you're in the accuracy business, you're going to look for the kinds of forecasters we've been looking for in the work we've been doing with the intelligence community and elsewhere. Where you're, you're, and, these, and these are going to be forecasters who are not very entertaining. If you're in the entertainment business, you're going to be looking for people who are entertaining. There's a separation in Bloomberg and, and, and probably most and, and other you know, sophisticated media companies between analytics yeah. and, and, and the front end, right? Absolutely. So what about experience? Like, to what degree can, if you're an expert, presumably you have, you know, probably decades of experience and, you know, you've been studying a particular subject matter for a long time, you've noticed patterns, or you can reach for historical analogies to describe a current situation and extrapolate from that. Does experience help offset the problems of overconfidence at all? Sometimes. It depends what you do with the experience. <laughs> um, it, people have different styles of thinking, and, and, and some people with experience become extremely skilled at creating very compelling, very articulate justifications why they must be right. Uh, so experience can actually solidify dogmatism for people with that cognitive style. And either for other people, experience uh, mellows them, and they, they become more attuned to the limitations of their prior worldviews, and uh, they, they introduce more appropriate qualifications, and they become better calibrated. So, but, but it's not a one trajectory. Uh, people, people mature in, in different ways. Talk to us about how you train people to get better. So obviously, like, let's start with the assumption that there are some people that aren't just looking for media sound bites. And maybe as you, uh, to use your example, they're in the intelligence community and they really want to make better forecasts about how things will happen in the future. They want to be better at predicting, say, Vladimir Putin's next move. What is the, how do you start and how do you, uh, what's the general approach to becoming better at that? Well, I would say the starting point is, again, not going to be all that exciting, and it, and it, and it's, it bears a strong resemblance to what Danny Kahneman proposes in his best-selling book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, it is start with the base rates. And if you look at the base rates, you'll, you'll see something quite interesting, and that is uh, people frequently claim, <laughs> to go back to the beginning of our conversation, people frequently claim that they're at an inflection point in history. Mm. Uh, if, you, if you look at how many inflection points there have been, <laughs> this is a very long list. The vast majority of claims about inflection points have been false positives. So you, you would uh, naturally, I think, be wary of claims about inflection points. Another claim you'd be wary of is military coups or revolutions. They're relatively rare events. So someone who's making a dramatic claim about there's going to be a regime change in a particular country within a particular time frame, the likelihood of their being right is pretty low. Phil, Joe mentioned this in the intro but what role do you think accountability plays in the sort of forecasting industry? Because it, it feels to me like given the volume of media that's out there right now, you know, either social media or traditional forms of media, it feels like you have a lot of people who will make, you know, say, 100 predictions and maybe one or two of those are right. And then they get trumpeted for those right 
calls or, you know, they laud themselves for those correct calls and people sort of forget about the other 98 or 99 calls that were wrong and no one bothers to go back and check on them because there's just so much forecasting and so much information out there in the world. So how can we develop accountability for forecasting? By running forecasting tournaments. Uh, well, prediction markets are, 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 are and, and forecasting tournaments are excellent ways of allowing people to track their accuracy on, on, on judgment calls for which there aren't ready financial market equivalents. How do these, how, I've never, I'm not familiar with these. So how does a uh, forecasting tournament work? You, you ask people to put subjective probabilities on events that are specified by well-defined questions such as whether Putin is going to be the president of Russia after 2024. And uh, those probabilities, they're, they're, if either in, that, in that case, it would be a probability uh, that would be yes or no, and it should sum up to uh, 1.0. There, there are lots of ways of doing it, but they all boil down to the, the core idea, which is, which is keeping score. Sticking with the intelligence community framework, how does the role of groupthink play into this and avoiding groupthink? Because if we think back to what are considered a lot of the uh, intelligence disasters over the last several years, the idea of some idea takes hold and no one feels uh, comfortable yelling stop and suddenly everyone congeals on the same idea. Is that something that in your work you focus on, sort of like these cascades where someone puts forth an idea and everyone feels compelled to fall in line or there's extreme pressure to voice a concern or voice skepticism on things? And are there ways or strategies that aspiring forecasters can use to eliminate or reduce that bias? Groupthink is a big problem. And that's why uh, in forecasting tournaments, we typically have people make judgments independently of each other, um, at least initially. It doesn't mean that all team or group decisions are going to be bad ones, but it does mean that forecasters need to value accuracy above all. Uh, If your primary goal is pleasing your boss and you have an opinionated boss, it's going to be very hard for you to offer that boss an opinion uh, with a probability judgment that uh, points to a policy different from what the the boss prefers. So it's another version of the question, what business are you in? Are you in the entertainment business? Are you in the pleasing your boss business? Are you in the accuracy business? Accuracy business is often not the first business people are in. It's often right. not even the second business people are in. <laughs> people are, are trying to have successful careers. They're trying to avoid embarrassment. <laughs> There's a lot of other things people are doing aside from accuracy. But so forecasting tournaments create a really weird social environment. They create a world in which only one thing matters, and that is minimizing the gaps between your probability judgments and reality over the long term. And that's it. That's, that's, the, that's the sole objective. I'm still trying to understand. So as you point out, like forecasting tournaments are very weird because in the real world, that's not how predictions are made and people are aware of what other people are thinking and talking about. So when you consult and when you talk with people, how do you foster a culture? And I guess this is really what matters to the end consumers of your research is how do you foster a culture where more people feel that they're in the accuracy business. It really helps if it comes from the top. People are looking up, they typically look up for their normative cues about what's appropriate. So if you have a boss who's open to being wrong, that, that helps a lot. 
So, Phil, I know the majority of your work has to do with statistical analysis of probabilities of forecasts, but I'm curious, could you give us a sort of case study that you've come across of a forecast that has gone very, very wrong and that sort of brings together some of the themes or lessons that you've been talking about? I can go back to the very beginning of when I was doing this work, and everybody thought we were at a major inflection point, uh, virtually everybody, and, and they were more or less right about it. I mean, in most inflection point calls are wrong, but they were right that the Soviet Union, at the time I was starting off on this work, was at an inflection point. People didn't have any idea where the Soviet Union was going to go. The, the conservatives thought that the Soviet Union was incapable of reforming itself. The liberals thought that Reagan was driving the Soviet Union into neo-Stalinist retrenchment and become more aggressive. Yet Gorbachev came along in March of 1985. He became the general party secretary, and he proceeded with Glasnost and Perestroika to liberalize the Soviet Union in ways that were really astonishing. Now, after the fact, the conservatives said, hey, we forced them to do it, but they didn't really expect the Soviet Union was capable of reforming itself beforehand. And the liberals said, well, we we knew it all along because the Soviet economy was crumbling and the Soviets needed to do this, and Reagan had no role in it at all. So the the paradox was that nobody was really very close at all to predicting what would happen, but everybody after the fact had a confident explanation for what would happen. Is there anything that people could have done better prior to the events unfolding uh, that could have made their forecast better? Or is it the kind of thing that was so novel and, you know, it's kind of so unexpected that this is just be a really hard thing to forecast in any meaningful sense? It was a hard thing to forecast, but there were clues that Gorbachev was different. And and even a conservative like Margaret Thatcher was signaling that based on our early meetings with Gorbachev. I think that the, the, the key factor here is... You know, how fast are you willing to change your mind in response to incoming evidence? Hmm. So after Gorbachev became general secretary in early 1985, there were, there were lots of little bits of news that suggested this was going to be a different style of leadership. And maybe not just a different style of leadership, but different substance, different poli- different substance of policies would be pursued. And it, would, it, would, it was your willingness, I think, to make small, rapid adjustments in response to the news. Uh, it wasn't that there was any one big item that absolutely turned the case, but there were lots of little bit, little bits of news that uh, accreted over time that, the, that good, good forecasters could, could attend to. And I think that's one of the defining features of the best forecasters is that they're more granular. They, uh, they make distinctions among more degrees of maybe than normal people do. Hmm. An old joke in, in, in my field is that people can, de- can really only distinguish three degrees of uncertainty. You know, yes, no, and maybe. The best forecasters are people who just know, know the difference between a 40-60 bet and a 60-40 bet, uh, or even a 55-45 and a 45-55 bet. So it, it's some, somewhat analogous. There would be no doubt, for example, if I said, you know, good poker players could do that. And you say, well, sure, they, they must be able to do that in a repeated play game where you get rapid quantitative feedback. Right. But you say, well, good geopolitical and economic forecasters also do that. And you'd say, well, can that really be possible? And, and, and the answer is yes, it can. So do you have a favorite forecaster? You know, it's like asking who are my favorite children, right? I, I, I know I'm not. I, 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 well, I would, I wouldn't pick any particular person as a favorite forecaster, but I, I, I think there are lots of very admirable people out there. Well, in the beginning, you mentioned Nate Silver and his prediction, or not prediction, but his assessment 
maybe a better way to put it, that Hillary had a 70 percent chance of winning the election. He's someone who has a very sort of clear understanding of probabilities. And he puts, uh, you know, he has a difference between 85 and 70 and 50 and 20 and probably fits very well into your database. By and large, do his 70 percent forecasts prove to be right about seven out of 10 times? I have not analyzed Nate's data, but Nate does have data. And he analyzes it himself, and he has reported how well calibrated his, his, his the forecasts on the 538 site tend to be in in both uh, sports and political forecasts. And uh, I think they're pretty good uh, in the sense of being well calibrated. I don't know the data on resolution, but on calibration, they, they're, sc- they're scoring pretty well. There are two key facets of, of being a good forecaster when you're doing subjective probability scoring. One of them is what I mentioned earlier, calibration. So when you say 70% likely to 70% things happen 70% of the time. The other is resolution. Now, so there's there's a sneaky and lazy way of being well calibrated. So if you're a weather forecaster in Seattle and it rains 60% of the time and you say, hey, I'm just going to say there's a 60% likelihood of rain every day. And you know what? I'm going to be well calibrated because rain will happen 60% of the time. <laughs> you, you, you would be, <laughs> you'd be well calibrated, but you'd be very uninteresting. So you, there's another property you, you need to ask a forecaster is beyond calibration. And that is you need to ask them, are you good at assigning much higher probabilities to things that happen than to things that don't? Are you good at being justifiably decisive? So you want forecasters who are two things. You want, they're appropriately humble which is, means well-calibrated, but they're also justifiably decisive. They, they, they say interesting, decisive things when they have a warrant for saying those things. So the, it's a combination of those two things that makes someone a, a so-called super forecaster in our work. And, um, but I, I think that the, the, Nate, the Nate Silver Group at 538 is doing, doing the right things. And, and I think a number of other organizations are starting to do the right things as well. So on that note, how should forecasters deal with tail risk events? Because, of course, as you as you put it, you know, you could just sort of do an average of probabilities and you might look very smart and very well calibrated. But at some point, there is a chance that a, a big unexpected event is going to come out of nowhere and sort of shift the entire uh, regime of statistics in some way. How should forecasters deal with those kind of unforeseen risks? I think you want to uh, think in terms of shades of gray rather than black and white. It's not that things are there. There are some things are foreseeable and other things are unforeseeable. That there are black swans and then there are white swans. There are swans of varying degrees of grayness. And the best forecasters, I think, recognize that there is a continuum um, and that uh, tail risk is a problem. And you have to judge how important it is. You, you'll never miss a war or you'll never miss a disaster if you always predict disaster. But that, that the cost you're, you're paying in false positives is, is ridiculous. The question is, how high a price are you willing to pay for making lots of false positive predictions about, you know, the Dow is going to fall below 2,000 in the next six months, that sort of thing. And, 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 and you know, by, by, by futures contracts based on that belief, uh, you know, skin in the game, as it were. Those are judgment calls, and they, they, you, you, you never escape making probability judgments, even though the probabilities may be extremely small. It's very difficult to say whether someone is well calibrated in distinguishing between events that are one in 10,000 likely and one in a trillion likely. Right. 
right? But there's a huge difference between one in 10,000 and one in a trillion, right? <laughs> so, Phil, uh, you mentioned, you know, people predicting war or natural disasters. It does feel sometimes like the people who forecast negative events, you know, recession is coming, war is coming, Donald Trump is upending the global order, those sorts of things, that they seem to make more waves or more inroads than people who predict either a status quo or a positive trends. Do you think people like to hear dire forecasts more than uh, extremely optimistic forecasts? I don't know if they like to hear them more, but they seem to find them more interesting and they pay more attention to them. Can the best forecasters or the super forecasters, as you call them, can they always articulate their approach or do some people just have some sort of deeper intuitive sense. And I'm thinking about you used the poker analogy. And one of the things about poker is that there's different ways to play it. So some people are extremely mathematical in their forecast. They calculate everything. Others seem to much more clearly operate on feel and they just have a good feel for whatever reason. That turns out to be a successful strategy for them too. Is there a range in the approaches that people use or some people can very methodically lay out their approach like at Nate Silver where they build all these models versus a more intuitive, feel-based approach that maybe can't be written down as well? Yeah. A long time ago, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book. I don't know if you remember it, called Blink. And there were some people in my field who wrote a much less well-known book that was a rejoinder called Think. Well, I think <laughs> I remember that. that. So you've got a, a dualism here between people who, who endorse Blink and people who endorse Think. Uh, I, I lean toward the think end. I'm not precluding the possibility that in, when you're dealing with uh, events that, that occur over and over again, and there's lots of repeated play, and there's lots of, of opportunity to build up deep experience and, and uh, automated cognitive processing, that some people can become intuitively very good at it. Uh, and they may even be doing rather complex calculations in their head very rapidly. So it's not that the in intuition is, is ESP here. It could, it could be that the, some of the best forecasters uh, are not, are, are, have simply overlearned the probability calculation heuristics. Uh, to the point where they 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 unfold virtually automatically, just as a like a master pianist, right? He doesn't have to think about every key, and just a you know a great tennis player doesn't have to think about where his arm is, that sort of thing. So, Phil, I feel like I have to ask: Will you give us a forecast? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll give you a forecast, <laughs> even though I'm not a forecaster. Uh -oh. <laughs> just just for you, just for you, I will I will, I will give you a forecast. <laughs> And, and that is, I don't think the forecast, forecasting practices are going to change very fast. I, I mm. think that the majority of people uh, are making forecasts because they don't want to offend people in power. They don't want to offend clients uh, because they want to be entertaining in, 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 in media performances or elsewhere. Uh, and that accuracy will continue to be a very, a very secondary goal. But that gradually, over the next 10, 20, 30 years, uh, forecasting tournaments and prediction markets will become an increasingly common way for people to um, resolve certain categories of disagreements. Well, hopefully your, uh, your appearance on this podcast will help marginally change the trajectory of the forecasting <laughs> industry over the next several decades. But really appreciate you uh, coming out. A fascinating, fascinating discussion. Thanks so much, Phil. <laughs> okay. Take care.
So, Joe, I'm just going to point out that Phil's forecast did not contain a probability. Oh, ha. Even though he did a uh, pretty uncontroversial forecast, even (laughs) he uh, didn't uh, put a precise number on it. But I really I I really like that conversation. I think it's just a great topic because we see this all the time and not just in the fact that people come on and give forecasts and never are really held accountable for them. But just in what is the purpose of forecast and how many times we all encounter people who give forecasts, but whose job is clearly not accuracy. And uh, I'm thinking a lot of their I think there are a lot of asset managers like this who use stories as a way of gathering clients. And maybe they tell a bearish story or a conspiratorial story about the Fed or whatever. But that story really has nothing to do with how they then go on and invest. Right. And certainly in the investment industry, there are plenty of people whose positions just don't add up to the world viewpoint that they tend to express, which, you know, again, I would think of a lot of the really bearish people out there who for the past eight years have been saying, you know, move into cash, buy gold, the end is coming. And yet clearly they are in the business of putting cash to work in some way or another. So, you know, it seems a little bit out of sync. You know, we didn't, you know, we only talked a little bit, and I'm sure if we read his work uh, and studied it, there'd be more depth. But in terms of becoming a better forecaster, this idea of just sort of looking at the uh, the the default and what his point is, well, coups are pretty rare mm. and wars are pretty rare and regime change is pretty rare. And sort of starting there, I mean, another thing in stock markets is like, Bear markets are really rare and and stock market Mm -hmm. crashes are really rare. And so this sort of idea of like, as you put it in the beginning and as we were talking about, we're at a moment in which lots of people are talking about inflection points. It feels like things um, might turn. But just starting from this assumption that we're probably not an inflection point and that most of these turns that we think are, oh, they're bound to happen now probably won't happen now. It's like a, it's an interesting starting point. I mean, obviously, that's not enough because sometimes the turns do happen. Right. But starting from that assumption, it's like that you're probably the right move is to fade the expectations of a turn. See, feels like an interesting toehold to get into and to then move from there. Right. But see, I think this is where human psychology and preferences come in, because no one is going to remember or reward you for continuously calling the status quo correctly. But they will probably remember you if you did call the big regime shift or the big bear market. And that's why so many people remember quite a few names that predicted the 2008 financial crisis. But no one remembers as clearly, you know, people who called the gigantic rally that we had after 2009. Right. The only, you know, the only one, like an exception to someone like Warren Buffett, who just buys stocks and doesn't do anything fancy and has done very well. <laughs> so there's no, seriously, like there's a few people like that. I feel like Warren Buffett is always the exception. Yeah, that's true. Like you can't just point to Buffett, but that's true. All right. <laughs> well, on that note. Uh, This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. You should follow our guest on Twitter, Philip Tetlock. He's at P. Tetlock. And you should follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson, as well as the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And be sure to check out 
all of Bloomberg's podcasts on Twitter under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. 